Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Ryan Vasquez. Just ahead, we'll talk about the New Orleans School District no longer being all charter. But first, Louisiana's special session on crime has concluded in a brisk two weeks with many of Governor Jeff Landry's priority getting passage and now landing on his desk awaiting his signature. State government reporter Molly Ryan has been covering the special session and joins us now. Hi, Molly. Hi. Molly, one of the governor's priorities was expanding the death penalty options in an effort to bring back executions in the state. So we haven't had an execution in Louisiana since 2010. Why has this been one of the governor's priorities? Well, I think one reason for this is that Landry and lawmakers, especially Republican lawmakers, have repeatedly said that they want to focus on the victims of crimes and their families and bringing justice to them. Landry says the state has a contractual obligation to victims to carry out these death penalty sentences that are handed up by juries. And Landry has long been a tough on crime Republican. He campaigned for governor on a tough on crime platform, and that's when he first promised voters he would call this special session on crime. Now, Louisiana's three biggest cities have appeared on lists of the most dangerous cities in the nation in recent years. Crime has also been listed as a top issue on the minds of voters. And like the rest of the nation, Louisiana saw a spike in crime during the COVID-19 pandemic. So Landry has identified crime as a top issue to address And he and the legislature say they want to send a message to criminals by passing these strict measures. Now, you spoke to a family whose daughter was killed nearly three decades ago. How have they been advocating for executions to be brought back in the state? Yeah, I spoke to Wayne and Carol Gazzardo, who are the parents of Stephanie Gazzardo, who at 27 years old was shot and killed while working at Calendar's restaurant in Baton Rouge. That was in 1995, and the Gazzardos have been fighting for nearly three decades to see Stephanie's killer, Todd Wessinger, executed. We've been fighting it for 28 years. We're not going away. We are not going anywhere. If I die, my wife's going to carry it on. If my wife dies, my son's going to carry it on. If he dies, the rest of my family will be there. Uh, And we've been accused of being uh, revengeful. Well, we don't want no revenge. We want want justice for our daughter. That's all we want. We've been asking for it. So the Gazzardos say they just want to see justice serve. Why is an execution the only way they feel they can't get it? Well, in their case, their daughter's killer, Todd Wessinger, has exhausted all of his appeals. His case has even gone all the way to the United States Supreme Court, where the justices voted eight to one to uphold his death penalty. And and most recently, he was denied clemency just a few months ago. When the Gazzardos spoke to me and and testified at the Capitol during the session, they said Wessinger has shown no remorse for his actions. They said it was unfair that he still gets to talk to his parents while he's in prison and on death row and that they don't have a way to talk to their daughter, Stephanie. Another thing they told me is that they don't trust the idea of life in prison because it doesn't always mean that someone will spend the entire rest of their life in prison. They told me that for the past nearly 30 years, they wake up concerned that they're going to see something in the news about someone trying to get Wessinger out of prison. Life in Louisiana is not life. Life is 20 years. Life without parole is not life without parole. Perfect example. Our ex-governor, John Bill Edwards, just pardoned 56 people out of Angola. 40 of them 
were convicted murderers. Some of those were without parole. Well, guess what? They walk in the streets today. So don't let them fool you and tell you life is life and life without parole, he'll die there. That's not true. So this bill, once signed by Landry, will do what exactly, Molly? The bill would add the electric chair and nitrogen gas hypoxia as methods of execution in Louisiana. So with lethal injection, which is the only legal option right now, there would be three methods the state could use to kill someone. Electrocution was the method used decades ago. Uh, Nitrogen hypoxia is a newer and very controversial method. It's only been used once before in Alabama, just about a month ago. But it's been hard for the state to source the drugs for lethal injection, which is why lawmakers wanted to add these other methods. The bill would also hide information from the public about the drugs and companies involved in an execution. And originally, the bill had criminal penalties for anyone who disclosed that information. That provision was removed from the bill. And lawmakers also added a provision that gives the state inspector general oversight of the drugs and materials involved in an execution to ensure that they come from a reputable source, though the public would still not have access to that information. Okay, so a lot of other things happened in this session, and, you know, a few controversial bills besides this also passed. One was a bill that will treat all 17-year-olds charged with crimes as adults. Why did Republican leadership push for that bill? Yeah, so this bill reverses the Raise the Age Act that was signed into law under former Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards that went into effect just a few years ago in 2019. And that act raised the age at which someone can be tried as an adult in Louisiana's criminal justice system from 17 to 18. The bill that passed out of this session undoes that. It lowers the age back down to 17. Um, Republicans, including Landry, have blamed an increase in crime on those criminal justice reforms that were passed under Edwards. The author of this bill, Senator Heather Cloud, said that the state saw an increase in juvenile criminal cases since the Raise the Age Act was passed. Cloud also said that most 17-year-old offenders are really men and need to be tried as adults. And Republicans said that they're hoping this measure will deter juvenile crime. But opponents don't think that any of these measures will deter crime. And there's some dueling data out there that shows that 17-year-olds who are treated as adults are at a higher risk for things like abuse and that they're more likely to commit crimes again in the future. Uh, Any other bills of note to you, Molly, that passed this week uh, through a very brisk session? Well, I think there's a group of three bills that are very interesting that passed, and they were brought by Representative Debbie Bilio. She's a Republican lawmaker from Kenner and chairwoman of the House Criminal Justice Committee. Her first bill gets rid of parole for almost all offenders, with exceptions for youth offenders who are sentenced to life. Her second bill would significantly cut down the amount of time, good time, people can earn while incarcerated. A good time is the time that prisoners can get shaved off of their sentences for good behavior and participation in rehabilitation programs. Before those criminal justice reforms passed in 2017, Louisiana required prisoners to serve at least 75% of their sentence before they could get out on good time. And we had the highest incarceration rate in the nation when that was the case. Since those reforms, the minimum time prisoners have had to serve is 35% of their sentence. But now they'll be required to serve at least 85% of their sentence before they can get out on good time. So Louisiana is actually going to get stricter than it was before 2017 when it comes to good time. And Vilio's last bill, which I'll mention quickly, is one that 
passed as well. And it just increases the penalties for people who violate the terms of their parole. So some have characterized this special session as an attempt to roll back many of those criminal justice reforms that they passed in 2017. Based on what's happened, do you feel that's a fair characterization, though? I think I think that's definitely a fair characterization. Landry and lawmakers have long made it clear that they want to undo a lot of the policies passed under Edwards. And the criminal justice reforms were a big part of that. Landry, as attorney general, spoke out against the reforms when they were passing. And Republicans blame those reforms for high crime rates in Louisiana. And as I just mentioned, many of the bills passed out of this special crime session do go back on those bipartisan reforms. The age for someone to be tried as an adult is going back down to 17. Um, the criminal justice reforms passed under Edwards really sought to expand parole eligibility, eligibility and Villio's bills do the opposite of that. So I'd say it's a pretty fair characterization. So not much time before the next one goes here. Looking ahead to the regular session, should we expect crime to be a big topic among legislators? Yeah, we have just a little over a week until the regular session. I do think that Republican lawmakers passed most of the tough on crime proposals that they wanted to during this special session. But I think addressing crime will continue to be a top issue for Landry and Republicans in the legislature. Molly Ryan is our state government reporter. Thanks again, Molly, for joining us. Anytime. Thank you. WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Ryan Vasquez. Now we turn to New Orleans, where the local school board says it will directly run a school next year. It's a big deal for the country's only all-charter public school system. The board hasn't operated a school since 2019, and the district has had mostly charters for much longer. Aubrey Uhas, our education reporter, has been covering the story and joins us now. Hey, Aubrey. Hey, Ryan. So how did we get here? Yeah, before we talk about this exact moment, we're going to rewind and I'm going to talk about how we got to the all-charter system for people that don't know. And basically, before Katrina, we had a traditional school system. Some schools were doing really, really well, but the system overall was struggling. Low graduation rates, a lot of kids not going to school. School board was an absolute mess. So then Katrina hits. Reformers use it as an opportunity to completely overhaul the system. The state took over most of the city's public schools, gradually turns them over to charters. Since then, graduation rates, college enrollment, test scores, all the data pretty much improves. So we have this all-charter system, but it doesn't have to be an all-charter system. The local school board has the power again to run schools, um, but they haven't. That's changing now, right, Aubrey? Right. So for the first time... In a really long time, we have board members saying that they want the district to run schools directly. They've taken this step away from just, you know, 
supporting an all-charter system completely. And what happened this week was that the board voted unanimously to directly run a closing charter school. That school is Lafayette Academy, and it lost its charter during this year's renewal process. Um, And and like I said before, it's the first time the district has moved to direct run a school after basically two decades of transitioning to an all-charter system. So what pushed them now to make such a significant decision? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, Board members have said they feel like they've been moving towards this moment for a while. Uh, While the charter system has had its successes, like I said before, um, it hasn't, you know, delivered completely on the promise of providing a high quality education for every child. Because of the way accountability works, there's this churn as schools open and close, and it's typically the most vulnerable kids who are impacted. And there's been all sorts of other issues, too. You know, no excuses, discipline, over-testing, persistent special education violations. Uh, So when the board voted to take away Lafayette's charter, um, they were presented with this unique opportunity to kind of step in and, and get in the game again directly. Um, and, and even that decision was kind of unexpected. They, they thought that another charter operator would want to run the school. But when no one stepped forward, there was this whole mess. Uh, the superintendent said that she would close the school, but they didn't like that. Uh, <laughs> there was this pushback. And ultimately, the board really just the only thing they could do was tell the superintendent to run the school directly. Uh, and now that's the plan for the coming school year. So you mentioned the superintendent. What has she had to say about the situation? Yeah, she's relatively new to town. It's her second school year, but she recognizes that this is like a really significant moment. It's it's not lost on her. Um, she she spoke kind of about all the forces at play um, and how people might be feeling at last week's board meeting. Many native New Orleanians feel that this district is something that was done to them. And I do understand why they feel that way, and I wish that I could make amends for what's happened in the past. When I accepted this position, I was clear that there would be times when an unprecedented amount of boldness and decisiveness would be needed. And perhaps this is that time. So it sounds like the stakes are pretty high for this one school. So what's going to happen now? Yeah, so the district essentially has to get a new school up and running because when the charter pulls out, they don't leave anything behind. You have to hire teachers, figure out transportation, all of that. And it's a pretty tight timeline, right? We are, you know, in the second half of the school year and they're going to open up this school fresh at the end of the summer. Um, board members have some concerns about that. Carlos Zervagon, whose district includes the school, said he was worried that with all of the back and forth and miscommunication, um, that they just might not have enough time. Uh, and he said, given the circumstances, given how significant it is that they're stepping in to run a school for the first time in a long time, they can't afford to mess it up. It is unlikely that we will be able to recruit the teachers, get the students back, and ramp this up for success and, and it must be successful. He actually suggested delaying the school's opening for a year, but he was outvoted. Um, and other board members, you know, stress the fact that there are kids that go to that school right now and they have an obligation to keep the school open for those kids so that they don't have to find a new place to go, even if it is just temporary. Um, but under the current plan, some kids will have to go elsewhere because the school currently serves pre-kindergarten through eighth grade. But in the fall, it's only going to serve kindergarten through fifth grade. So there'll still be some disruption for families. And so, you know, that's a big deal for families, obviously, not knowing where your kids are going to go. What are they saying about this? Right. I think a lot of them are just pretty exhausted at this point. Um, Like I said, the whole process has been kind of messy. They were told, you know, the school had lost its charter. Then they were told it was going to open under another charter. Then they were told it was going to close completely. That's just a lot of back and forth. 
I went to Lafayette during dismissal yesterday as kids were flooding out of the school's building on South Carrollton Avenue, and I caught up with Nikki Evans. Her daughter's in kindergarten. How are you guys doing? You planning to keep your daughter at the school with all the changes? Yeah, that's that's my that is my plan. I, I wasn't, but you know, I am. Yeah. yeah. You say you weren't, but you are now. What changed? Yeah. Well, you know, they made us, you know, take all the kids. They took all the kids out. We right. had to enroll them in another another school. But I mean, if they're gonna stay open, then right. I, I really enjoy the school. Mm-hmm. So if the school continues to be an option, you want your daughter to yeah, stay here. Yeah, yeah. Now, the change next year is going to be, it won't be a charter operator anymore. It'll mm-hmm. be the school district mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. Does that make a difference to you in your mind, or is it just you want your daughter in this building, maybe the hope that some of the teachers will stay? Yes. It, it, what you saying? <laughs> teachers stay and, you know, a, a better, I guess, education system, you know. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to let her stay Let's see how it goes. Yeah, see how it goes. See how it goes. I got high hopes for it. <laughs> so Evans has high hopes. But as you heard, technically she has to re-enroll her daughter at the school, which won't be called Lafayette next year. It'll be the Leah Chase School, named for the city's beloved late local chef. And the enrollment situation is the most immediate issue the district needs to address. Since families were told at one point that the school was closing, many enrolled their kids elsewhere. Now that the school is staying open, the district needs to find out if families want their kids to stay there. Students who are currently enrolled have guaranteed seats at the school, but the city has an open enrollment process, so kids can essentially go anywhere. And honestly, the district needs families to stay at the school, because if enrollment is too low, it's going to be almost impossible for the school to operate, since funding is tied to number of students. And some quick math, the school currently has about 260 kids who could keep attending, The district says it pretty much needs all of them to stay or new students to fill those seats. In a perfect world, they'd like the school's headcount to be even higher, around 320 students, which allows them to have two classes per grade level. So they're getting ready to launch what I imagine will be a pretty intense recruitment campaign, not just for students, but also for teachers. Aubrey Uhas is our education reporter. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Ryan Vasquez. Oysters are sly helpers in the fight to protect coasts from erosion and flooding that is caused by climate change. But oyster reefs on Alabama's coast, like many others in the Gulf South, have taken a beating. In Louisiana, the Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana has been recycling oyster shells in an effort to rebuild the coastline for nearly a decade. The Gulf State Newsroom's Danny MacArthur takes us to a similar effort in the Gulf Shores to help rebuild the coastline there. It's lunchtime, and the original oyster house in Gulf Shores, Alabama, is full of folks who've come to eat. Yeah. Oh, you want it this way. Okay. That woman giving the instructions is Cecilia Mace the restaurant's marketing director. Once this table is done with these oysters, the shells are going to find a second life, back in the ocean, helping to rebuild a reef. 
is all thanks to something called the Oyster Recycling Program, started several years ago by the Alabama Coastal Foundation. May says the original Oyster House was one of the first restaurants to pilot the program. Most restaurants are putting them in their dumpster and they're putting them in a landfill. And these oyster shells are like gold. Oysters play a few important roles in their ecosystem. They filter the water and give a home to fish, crabs, and other animals. The oyster reefs also help with erosion because they provide a natural protection to the shoreline. The recycling process is simple, but it takes a while. See a little, I mean, there's a chunk of oyster right there. PJ Waters is walking through a field where there are piles of shells everywhere. They have to cure before they can go back into the water. That means a lot of these shells are still covered in gunk. And they've been sitting out in the sun for months. You can't adequately capture the smell on audio. You need to get smell-o-vision. Tell folks, I said it smells like, uh, it smells like progress. Waters is on the advisory committee for the Oyster Shell Recycling Program. He also coordinates another program designed to help oyster populations in the Gulf South, oyster gardening. He says it will take about six months to a year for these shells to cure. Then some of them will be taken to a hatchery where baby oysters can attach to them and grow. Then those shells will go to an oyster garden, like this one in the lagoon along the Gulf Shores coast. Yeah, make sure they're evenly. Dennis Hatfield is the president of the Little Lagoon Preservation Society. We're doing our final population estimates. Hatfield says once the shells come to them... We put them into cages out here, we grow them and maintain them during the season, and then at the end of the season, late October, early November, they get harvested and taken to Mobile Bay to, to be put on closed public reefs. Right now, they're growing oysters from Mississippi. Today, a group of students from Gulf Shores High School is helping out in the garden. On this one, I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight, oysters nine, tend to grow in clusters. Right now, 10, students are counting 11, how many individual oysters there are 13, in the different clusters. 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. About 20 on this cluster. The idea is to encourage a younger generation to get excited about doing something good for the environment. And it sounds like it's working. I enjoy it. I think it's a great like part just for the ecosystem and just what we're doing. Because it's recovery and whatnot. <laughs> we love it. We love it. Eventually, those oysters will make it back into the ecosystem, helping to rebuild the oyster reef along the Gulf Coast, one project at a time. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Danny McArthur. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Ryan Vasquez. A big thanks to our guests, Molly Ryan, state government reporter for WWNO and WRKF, and Aubrey Uhas, education reporter for WWNO and WRKF. Also, thanks to Danny MacArthur from the Gulf States Newsroom for their story. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell. Matt Bloom produced today's episode. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. 
You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast. I'm Ryan Vasquez, and thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Greater New Orleans Foundation.